0: Good morning. Let's try that again. (laughs) Today's reading is from Genesis, chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paran to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it, remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father re- refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I'm so glad that given all we've seen of Jacob in his life and some of the big blunders and mistakes he made. I'm really glad on Father's Day we've got his most faithful moment (laughs) because we've seen him go through some really horrible times and make some big blunders in this book of Genesis. But today we've got a shining moment. Would you pray with me for a moment? Jesus, we thank you for the fathers in this congregation. We ask a blessing upon them, upon their lives, upon their faith, upon their private and public lives. Let them honor you. Let them trust you at your word, even when things are hard and difficult. We thank you for them as men, as you've designed them and made them to be in a culture that is tarnishing and denigrating what it means to be a man. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a perfect blueprint in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's to him we turn now. Use your word, spirit, and bless us with it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11... There's a passage that many call the Hall of Faith. You probably are familiar with it maybe, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But in that chapter recorded there are the great acts of faith by all kinds of men and women of the Old Testament. Talks about Noah there who built a great ark and trusted God and got his family in it, this mighty act. Talks of Abraham who left his country when God called him to go out to a place he didn't know. Hebrews 11 speaks of Moses, who would not be called Pharaoh's son, but would rather choose to be mistreated with God's people. But Jacob, Jacob who we look at today, uh, and it it mentions in Hebrews 11 our obscure passage of Genesis 48. Here's what it says about Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Why is that? Isn't that that strange? You've got all these other men and women mentioned, these great, mighty acts, and here we've got Jacob, and this is the, 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 the segment of his life that the writer of Hebrews highlights as his great act of faith. It's not working for Laban, for Rachel, for 14 years. No mention of, remember that angel staircase that we had a while back? No no mention of that. But it's this obscure passage. The blessing of Joseph boys to the writer of Hebrews is his greatest act of faith. And the verse says this is worship even. When all he does is really bless the boys in faith. Why is that? Here's why. Because like Jacob's crossed hands, which confuse Joseph in this unexpected way, this crossing of hands, it, it confounds and it turns upside down everything the world values. And it's a picture of God's grace. That's why. And it shows us what it means this morning as we look at this story for both Jacob and Joseph and us to trust God's plan to trust God's will for things. And I know how hard that is. We were just singing that song, that the light and momentary affliction. And it was hard for harder for me to sing this morning than ever. These light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us a weight, a glory beyond imagination. Or that line we you're saying, there's nothing in this life that I can lose that would make me, I forget what it said, but question your love or, or doubt you? Is, I mean, if you're just singing that on a regular Sunday morning, it can come out pretty easy. But if you've lost something recently that was meaningful, that line takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Is there really nothing in this life that I could lose that would make me question my love for you or your love for me? Puts in a different perspective, doesn't it? A totally different perspective. Trusting God's grace, trusting his ways. When, like Joseph, we too struggle, don't we, when God crosses our plans with his will. I've got a fantastic plan for my life. God just doesn't know it yet, right? <laughs> Let's look this morning at Jacob's blessing, Joseph's response, and intimacy with God. Hopefully you've got your outline there. It's a little half sheet. For those of you who like to take notes or jot down references and keep Genesis 48 open, we're going to look at the, Jacob's blessing, Joseph's response, and intimacy with God. Let's start with Jacob's blessing. Jacob's crossed blessing, I already said it, but it's a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of God's grace. In verses 1 through 7, Joseph has this uh, act of humble submission, Joseph brings his boys to Jacob for blessing. These two boys, Manasseh, the oldest, and Ephraim, to be blessed by Jacob. Why is it humble? Why is it trusting for him to do this? Because when he does this and Jacob blesses them, he's resigning them to be outcasts in Egyptian society and from upward mobility. He's keeping them out from that in a society and to be forever identified with the shepherd people. Jacob and his clan rather than Pharaoh and his clan, kind of like Moses, actually, who wanted to be identified with God's people, not with powerful Pharaoh. That's what Joseph is doing. And we know as he's going to identify them with Jacob, this shepherd, shepherds were despised in Egypt. And so there is a humble trust that Joseph shows when he comes to Jacob because he's believing that they are going to be a people someday, even though now they're in this foreign land. And Jacob responds as he recalls the grand promises of God as the occasion for this. He said in Genesis 48.3, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and he blessed me and he said to me, here are God's words, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to, you for, to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And Joseph is showing his own trust in that as he brings his boys to Jacob because they are in a foreign land. They have no home. They've left behind the thing that God promised. There's nothing in this life that I can lose. What about the land, God? Joseph's showing his trust in that, and so is Jacob too, as he brings back those words. And we know, we know what God said, even though it doesn't look like it. We know what God said even though the plan looks impossible right now, right now, today. And Jacob in these first verses goes through this formal adoption process. This is probably why he even asks, who are these? It was probably part of a formal adoption process. I'm sure he knows his grandsons. He goes through this process and he adopts Ephraim and Manasseh, displacing his two sons, Reuben and Simeon, who did horrible things in their life. He displaces them with these two sons of Joseph. And did you notice how Jacob already changes the order of their names in verse five? Anybody catch that? You have to be a really close reader to catch that. Uh, he changes their order in verse five from the original order in the text when he says to them, to Joseph, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Not Manasseh and Ephraim. He puts the youngest before the oldest there, already giving us a hint of what he was gonna do. And that's where I wanna pick up, verse eight. After these first seven verses in this formal adoption, as we talk about this crossed blessing. So, a blessing in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, is not just a little nighttime prayer. It's not just saying your blessings. It, when a blessing happens by a patriarch, one of the fathers in the Bible, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. They were actually given this authority, given this power by God of blessing to give it. And once it was given, actually, in that formal way, it really couldn't be taken back. Jacob knew that, didn't he? As Esau wanted his father Isaac to take back the blessing that he'd given to Jacob, he said, no, 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 wait a minute, you can't do that. It's already been done, Isaac said. The blessing would do something for the child. It would set the course of direction Of the boys' lives. It would set up how they'd be treated and how they'd be be trained and and, and reared in their life. As the blessing went, so went the boy. As the blessing went, so went the training and the rearing. Manasseh was the older boy. And so that what does that mean? He would have been dad's favorite in the culture at that time, it just would have been the way it was. Manasseh would have been Joseph's favorite. He already would have been trained probably by Joseph and been poured into all kinds of hours and training because he had a role coming to be the heir, to be the responsible one, to be the wise one, to be the determined one, to be the leader, to step out front for the family. Manasseh would have had that training from Joseph, would have been the apple of his eye, much like Joseph was with his father. And we get this elaborate description of the blessing. Joseph brings the two boys before his dad, and he places Manasseh in Jacob's right hand. I'm going to do it this way for you guys. This is right for you. He places, he places Manasseh in Jacob's right hand, which was to be the hand of, of blessing, the hand of, of le- the place of leadership. The, the right hand is the place of honor, and the one on whom the right hand ple- uh, rests gets all of that. Left hand? Not so great. <laughs> always. All of us left handers should protest and put up a stink. How many of you here are you left handed? Sorry, you're not blessed. <laughs> sorry, that's just the way it is. I am too actually, so I'm right there with you. I'm a lefty as well. Um, but that's just the way culture has actually always, the word for left has always been really derogatory, pejorative, negative, just the way it is. We're changing that every day at a time, aren't we lefties? But it's a funny moment. Joseph brings them before Jacob. Manasseh now on the right, the blessed side. Ephraim on the left side. It's a strange moment. Joseph brings them before Jacob, and here's what he does. He comes before them, and he crosses his hands. He crosses his hands. And he puts his right hand, the hand of blessing, on the younger one, Ephraim. And his left one, the stinky one, on Manasseh, the older one. And Joseph is really upset. He's really upset. He's like, Dad, that's, that's the wrong one, Dad. He thinks his dad's having like a senior moment or something. What are you doing? And he wants to correct him. He's actually appalled. His dad is going against every culture and the grain of society, any, any, every society that had ever lived. The older is always blessed. The older always gets the inheritance, but Jacob says to him, and I love how you read that. He says to him, basically, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Joseph, I know what I'm doing. I know. I know. He even repeated it twice. There's no logical reason for what Jacob is doing here. It it makes no earthly sense that he would cross his hands and switch up the blessing, the younger, for the older. So what is Jacob doing? Well, as Hebrews tells us, and he speaks here himself, he's being faithful to what God has asked him to do by blessing the younger. Somehow he knew he was supposed to do this. In an act of faith... And by doing so, he's giving you and I a picture of God's unearned grace and how God always crosses the will of the world. He always does it in unexpected ways, which is challenging because our ways aren't God's ways allotted. It's like Jacob has finally come to understand just before he dies, better late than never, right? (laughs) That part of the Lord's prayer that says, thy will be done. It's like he's just getting that. And maybe it takes a lifetime for us to get it. It probably does. Not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. Thy will be done. You don't realize how hard that is to say it until... Maybe you see what comes from God's will at times. God, I would do it this way. Jacob, Dad, I I would do it this way. But you always do it your way and confuse the world with how your grace works. It's a picture of God's grace. 1 Corinthians tells us that. He always does it the strange way. But God chose what is foolish in the world, crossing his arms to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world, crossing his arms, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, crossing his arms, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's grace, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jacob, in his obedience here, is representing God to us. He's representing God to us. He's showing us how God works in ways in the world we don't understand. He always works in the world this different way. I always surprise the world. I choose the fools, the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised to show my power. This family is special, remember. They're a special family. They've got the blessing of God on them. And there's always somebody from their line who's got the promise of the Messiah to come from them. They're special. But in that, Jacob is beginning to understand the special way God works with his people. As I said, in every generation, one member of the family has the promise of the seed, and that's how God has always done it, if you think about it. He's always chosen the weaker and the younger. Do you remember our story back in Genesis? He chooses Sarah, the barren old woman, instead of beautiful Hagar. Oh, you thought it would be Esau, the man's man, the strong leader and Jacob, the mama's boy, is chosen. Remember Rachel? The ultimate beauty, the apple of Jacob's eye, God chooses Leah, the ugly one. She's going to be the one. Leah's the one who'll be Jesus' mother. In the line, Jesus' mother is always the outsider, always the weaker one, always the outcast. Think of Mary herself this teenage unwed mother. We need somebody to fight Goliath. We need a champion. Let's choose David the Runt. (laughs) Do you see this? I mean, this is always how God's grace works. Always. God always crosses the logic Of the world as Jacob did with his two grandsons. He always works in a way that confounds the smart, confounds the thinkers, confounds the experts. That's not to downplay thinking and the use of our minds at all, but he all it's always confounds the wisdom of the world, the way he works. What is Jacob doing? He's showing us how grace works. Think about this. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you were saved by grace. Not your reputation, not your family of origin, right? Not your record. Salvation is always a crossed hand on someone's shoulder who isn't expecting it. That's how it works. God comes to you. He finds you, he grabs you, he crosses your will and your life over. How many times I I talk with people who come to know Jesus, and they believe this, even if they don't quite know it, they always say, God found me. (laughs) I've heard that so many times in the lives of new believers. God found me, I wasn't even really looking for him. God found me. The world doesn't believe this. It's it's foolishness to them to be saved by grace alone by someone else. The strongest, the brightest, the best looking, the most athletic, they're the ones that always get the prize in our world, aren't they? The richest you could add to that, they're the ones. But think about the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all tragically flawed and broken, weren't they? And they all made idols out of something, or actually, someone usually. Abraham made an idol out of Isaac. Isaac made an idol out of Esau. Jacob made an idol out of Rachel, and then Joseph, and it destroyed his family, and it leads to horrible things, and lying, and stealing, and bad parenting, as we saw with Jacob and his boys. They're all terribly flawed. These are the heroes of the faith, of the Bible. God breaks in in grace so no man or woman can boast. As we read in that passage, God breaks in in grace. He comes to them. But here's a great lesson for us on sin. As we think of these characters, as we think of Joseph in a moment, and what they did, these broken patriarchs, sin is when we make an idol out of a good thing. And we make it into an ultimate thing, or you might call it a God thing. At first, any one of our sins is always a heart-level thing, something we want, something we desire, something the Bible calls an idol, and it's not a statue for us. It's a good thing, usually. Family, money, influence, career, sex, um, food, it could be anything, our kids. Sin is at first a heart-level. You might call it the sin beneath the sin. Does that make sense? The lying, the stealing, the adultery of the patriarchs, that was just the result of their idolatry. It was a symptom on the surface. It was how the sin played out, the symptom of the sin beneath the sin. It's the same with us. Same with all these people in the Bible. That's why the very first commandment is what? Have no other gods do you realize that to break commandments two through 10, you always, always have to first break number one. That's how sin works. You always have to break commandment number one. And so that's how people can actually look really good on the outside. And you actually look at most people and you go, I mean, they're pretty good people. But if sin is actually something at a heart level, That even people that look pretty good on the outside can be just as bad as those people that we look at and go, that's a bad person. Because right, there are bad people, right? But if sin is not just breaking some commandment, but a heart attitude and a desire that's totally out of whack, like an idol, then people who look really good on the outside too can be just as bad as the bad people. They aren't looking for God, but they might have a really sweet life that looks really upstanding. But they have no desire for God. They're looking to manipulate God with their behavior. And they aren't looking for God's sovereign grace to come across their life and their will and all the good things they put their hope in. They need to be rescued from their goodness. Just as you and I did. Because you were probably a good person. You would have called yourself anything before you are a Christian. I, I'm pretty good, you know. They'd be rescued from their goodness or from the good things that they made into God things. That's why it takes God's cross hands. If you're a Christian, even a good person, you know deep down inside that your sins run deeper than your actions, don't you? They run at a heart level. They run down here, or they spring from here. It's your attitudes, it's your wants, it's your desires, it's the thoughts of your heart. And if you are a Christian, God's grace has come to you and grabbed you grabbed you. He opened your eyes to see a need you never even knew you had and with an answer in Christ, you never knew you needed. That's what he does. Do you believe you were saved by grace? God's grace always has to cross the way the world thinks it should be done. And that's what he does. That's what Jacob is getting here. Yeah, the world would do it this way, but God asked me to do something different. The weak, the young. And this is a bit sobering. Jacob's showing us, Thy will be done in his blessing, the younger one over the elder. Uh, And if you believe you're saved by grace, Thy will be done makes sense to you. But if you don't, it doesn't. Thy will be done only makes sense if you believe you are saved by grace alone. Let's take a look as we continue. You know that if you're saved by grace, if you're saved by grace alone, and this is the sobering hard part, God doesn't owe me anything. And he can actually ask anything of you. That's why we're singing that song today, there's nothing in this life that I could lose and make me question your love for me. And he can cross any of your plans if you're saved by grace alone. And he can allow anything to come into your life if you're saved by grace and not works. It's a bit challenging. I remember one pastor sharing a story about a woman who came to him after the message he shared, being saved by grace alone. She said, I don't think I like this. (laughs) It's actually scary, she said. So because if I'm saved by grace alone and not by some standard, God said, He could ask anything of me. He could ask me even to give my life. It's challenging. But if you're not saved by grace alone, then God owes you at least something. He owes you at least something, at least some standard of living based on how you live. Okay, God, you know, you might let a few things come into my life and a few little, little bumps throw past here and there, but but not major tragedy. I've kept up my end of the bargain, God. You owe me at least this. You don't say that if you know you're saved by grace. But man, does it take a lifetime to learn. To know you're saved by grace is to be able to say like Jacob, even though he didn't literally say it, "Thy will be done. All I have is of grace. You don't owe me anything and I owe you everything, even my obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. It may be hard and it is, but if you know you're saved by grace, it's somewhere you're like, it makes sense. Jacob's crossed blessing shows us how God's grace works and it always confounds the world, but many times it does us too. Don't you feel that? I mean, come on. Don't you get confused at times? Like, okay, I believe this, but man, this is a hard one. This is a hard one, God. And in Joseph's response, we get a picture of ourselves. Joseph's angry response, number two there, to not getting his own way, it's an opportunity for growth and trust in God, even if maybe he doesn't realize it yet. Or maybe we don't see it yet, this side of heaven. If Jacob represents God in this story, Joseph kind of represents every man or woman, sort of represents us. And this is, as we said, going to challenge us. But I think that's good because this is probably the way to real spiritual growth in life. Real growth. Not just on the surface, I'm pretty good, I attend church and tithe, but real spiritual growth. This is a hard one. When Jacob crosses his arms on the boys, he's not just showing us what God's grace looks like. He's also crossing Joseph's will, isn't he? He's crossing what Joseph wants. He's going against everything Joseph had planned for, for his boys. How many of us like to see our child go through something difficult? Not one of us. It's one of the hardest things in life, isn't it? One of the hardest things in life is to watch our children go through something difficult. And sometimes our adult children, isn't it? Did you feel more helpless? But here, what Jacob does goes against Joseph's will. He's going against everything Joseph has planned for. He's going against all the plans he had for his oldest son, all the preparation he'd made, all the hours he poured into his eldest son who'd be the heir, and he's ripping up Joseph's agenda. He's tearing it in two. And Joseph responds like you and I do many times when God crosses our plan wait a minute, God, I know how my life should go. (laughs) I know what needs to take place. I know what I need. I know my will. Don't you do that too? And Joseph's actually really mad here. We don't quite get it in the translation. It doesn't really help us get that. But in this time, at this place, in this culture, you wouldn't speak to your dying aged father this way. (laughs) You just wouldn't do it. Dad, this is what you should do. You're really messing things up here. He's kind of treating him like a child, actually. But I love Jacob's comeback. It's like we've heard from God so many times, and it's so gracious. It's, I know. I know, my son. I know. I know, my son. I know. I know this is hard but you can trust me that I know what you need. I know what they need. I know what God wants here. I know this isn't what you plan. I know, I know. Joseph, be strong. Have faith. Trust me, this is best for all involved. Wow. That's hard. That's challenging. No, God, God, I know what I need. I, I, I know best. It's a battle of who knows best, isn't it, for our life? It's a really challenging picture. Romans 11, who has the mind of God? Who's counsel, counseled God? Do I tell him what's best? Do you tell him what's What's, what's best? It's is so, it's so challenging because if we're saved by grace alone and Christ alone, it means he can allow anything to come in our life and he doesn't actually owe you an explanation. He graciously gives it at times through the spirit, through his word, through the counsel of a brother or sister in Christ. But he doesn't owe us anything. He loves us, but that love looks like godly love perfect love not love how we would define it many times let me see if i can illustrate this i think about children grandchildren we're always doing this to our kids aren't we we're always uh, 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 crossing their will i mean we do it all the time well let me see why can't you stay up till 11 watch pg-13 movie and eat ice cream all night because you can't. And I said so. And I don't have time to explain all the details to you of too much sugar and lack of sleep or seeing something you shouldn't see, but I just can't. You can't do it. And think about children who don't obey their parents. They usually put themselves in great danger, don't they? There's a reason God gave us parents. You can't run out in the street. Yes, you have to wash your body when you bathe. (laughs) I mean, some of the things we think—I mean, they are funny—but if we never did them, our kids would die. (laughs) So we're crossing the will of our kids all the time, and they just have to obey. But when God does it to us, what do we do? Wait, 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 wait! (laughs) I got to wash. No, 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 not this way, God. It's supposed to be this way. You're supposed to bless this way. Not that way. This is super hard, isn't it? And we don't like this. But how's God gonna grow and change us and show us things about ourselves that need to change unless he sometimes crosses our will? And think about it. If you don't have a God who can cross your will, at least at some time, you really don't have the God of the Bible. You have a God of your own making. It's actually an opportunity for great change. You see, Jacob sees his life. He's gone through a lot of this. He sees his life now as thy will be done, willing to do it even in front of the face of his son who would say, no, Dad, you're crazy. Remember, he had lied. He He had cheated He had stolen to get what he wanted throughout his life. And now you can tell he sees his life through God's lens. He sees his life through God's lens. It's Joseph who reacts like us. Remember, we said this morning that the root of sin is always a heart desire for something too much, an inordinate desire, the Bible calls it. It's really not just breaking rules. That's maybe how we grew up. We didn't look at the heart level too much. It's really just breaking the rules. It's finding out that you love something too much. What is it for you? Your health, money, family, sex, food, any good thing, as we said, can become a God thing. And as long as you have it, guess what? You have no idea that it's become an idol. You have no idea. I've felt that with my health the past couple months. They've gone through a couple hard seasons. Until it's gone, you don't know how much hope you actually placed in it. Until it's gone, you can't hear that line and sing, There's nothing in this life that I can't lose. What is it for you? And when he does that, we grow. And hopefully we find that he is enough. He is enough. We're freed from the slavery of whatever that thing is or from the anxiety that we felt around losing it. See, anxiety actually, and I struggle with it myself, anxiety is actually a form of pride. Did you know that? It seems so humble. It's actually a form of pride because the root of it is this phrase. I know how things need to be. I know how my life needs to go. And now I don't have it, and I'm sure God doesn't have a plan that I could really trust in, or that maybe He's going to work out for my better. You see, anxiety actually has a root in pride, because I know which hand the blessing needs to go on. It's hard. Not this way, God. Please, any way, but this way. We're always putting something, aren't we, in God's right hand for blessing, aren't you? We're always putting the thing there that we think needs to go there. I love this quote by Marcus Dodds. He says it better than I do. He says, we put forward some cherished desire to God's right hand. He's speaking about this story in Genesis 48. And displeased like Joseph that still the hand of greater blessing should pass to some other thing. Does God not know what is the oldest with us? Like Manasseh. What's been the longest at our heart? Certainly he does. I know it, my son. I know it. He answers to all our expostulations, just means our, our words. and It's not because he doesn't understand or regard your predilections, your natural and excusable preferences that he sometimes refuses to gratify your whole desire and pours upon you blessings of a kind somewhat different from those you most earnestly covet. He will give you the whole that Christ hath merited. But for the application and distribution of that grace and blessing, you and I must be content to trust him. And God knows it's hard. Look at Jacob's response. I know, my son. I know, my daughter. I know. Our job is to trust him. But how can we do that? I mean, Jacob shows us a picture of God's grace. Joseph shows us in his anger at, at, at losing his way. He shows us there are great opportunities to trust and grow. But how can we do that when the, some of the things God brings into our life? Let's look at intimacy to close. As Jacob and Joseph wrestled with and trusted God's will rather than their own, it brought them an unmatched intimacy with God, wrestling with him wrestling with the surprises, wrestling with the crossed hands of God in our life. Okay, you might say, yeah, I, I, I believe God is sovereign. Okay, I believe that. And uh, yes, I want to be able to trust when God crosses my will, but that sounds impossible. What do I do? Well, it actually is impossible on your own. It is impossible. But it's in the blessing here. <laughs> Let's look at it. The blessing that Jacob said over Joseph and his boys. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who's been my shepherd all of my life to this day. The angel who's redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. you might say, yeah, Jeff, I want to grow, and yeah, sure, I want to grow in holiness and obedience and trust in God, and I believe he's sovereign, but obey no matter what. Even if he doesn't give me the answer and crosses my will, how can I do that? I can't. And as I said, you're right, you can't on your own. In the middle of this blessing, Jacob says, he talks about the angel. Remember the angel in his life? When was there a time that an angel, or the angel of the Lord actually, probably maybe, maybe even pre-incarnate Jesus, remember when he came to his life? It's in the middle of the blessing, Jacob says, the angel who's redeemed me from all evil blessed the boys. When did Jacob see the angel of the Lord? Do you remember? What did he do? He wrestled. He wrestled with him. And what happened to Jacob in that moment? He crippled Jacob. (laughs) And he limped the rest of his life. So why would the Bible say here that the angel delivered him from all harm? He tore his hip out of joint. (laughs) Why would it say that when the angel gave him this huge injury that would plague him the rest of his life? Because it was in that wrestling that redemption came to him. It was in that wrestling that a truer intimacy came to Jacob. And guess what? He was reminded of it the rest of his life, wasn't he? That true saving came to Jacob in the wrestling, actually in the injury. He grew closer in intimacy to God. Remember that's even when he had his name, now you're Israel. He even changed his name there. God removed something from him and gave him something greater in that moment, a greater understanding of who God was. And that is how he tends to use our trials. Yes, he takes something, but the hope is, and at least let the prayer be, God, show me what you're doing. Show me what you're doing in me through this. Give me a greater understanding of you as you've taken one thing. Give me the better thing. The greater thing, there's nothing in this life that I can't lose. A closer intimacy. As he had to rely on God, not his own strength, he couldn't even walk after that. A greater understanding that when God crosses our will, he has a greater purpose, even if he doesn't show it to us. His word says it. And you have to look to the one, the one, the greater one, even than Jacob, the greater one, even than Jacob, who wrestled with God. You know who that is. I mean, for Jacob, wrestling with God meant he had to give up some of his autonomy, gave up his pride, had to give up an idol, had to limp the rest of his life. But it meant, it actually meant for him a greater intimacy, a greater blessing with God. Oh, you shall be called Israel, my son, my son. But for Jesus, when he wrestled with God in that garden, that garden of Gethsemane, do you know he wrestled so hard with God, he cried out for deliverance. Do you know that? Do you know he wrestled so hard with God, the Gospels record, he sweat drops of blood. And do you know what he said? Not my will but your will, not my will, but your will, God. And when Jesus wrestled, when Jesus submitted to the will of God, the Father, he got the exact opposite of Jacob. He didn't get closer to God. He took a punishment. He lost his life. He was abandoned by God on the cross, Scripture says. He lost the intimacy so we could have it the greater Jacob who wrestled with God so God could say to you, I know my daughter. I know my son. And because of the cross, because of the resurrection, you could actually believe it, that something greater is coming. Something better is coming. And when he takes something good thing away, that maybe we were relying on too much, there is a better coming because Jesus wrestled with God for us and said, God, your will, not my will, but thy will. And as we see that, as we experience that, as we understand what Jesus has done, when God crosses your plans, you'll be able to trust him a bit more. You'll be able to lean on him as the rock a bit stronger and listen, hear him say, I know, I know, I know, and actually believe it's the better way. You pray with me. God, this is a hard story. These are hard truths. These were hard truths for me this week to prepare and preach, Lord. But because we know that Christ said, Not my will, but your will, because he faced the excruciating punishment on the cross for us, we can trust and believe, Lord. That even when good things come out of our life, it's possible you have a greater purpose. I mean, we might not know that purpose, but it can't be because you don't love us because look what you did to your own son for us. It can't be that. So let us believe you. Let us take you at your word. As we even sang in the song, if the word, even when the world gives way, that your word will stand. It's in Christ's name, amen.